Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us not only a successful real estate guy who's done unbelievable things with decades of experience, who I've been so excited to talk to, but more than that, a very fascinating guy that's just done very interesting things above and beyond just being a successful businessman, starting with you know, in high school, this guy was booking punk bands as a manager in, in Los Angeles of, you know, bands like the Circle Jerks, which nobody's heard of except for me and others. And just diehard entrepreneurial guy, you know, from the time he was like 12 years old and everything in between. And he's uh, written a couple great books, one of which I just finished, which is called Burn Zones, Playing Life's Bad Hands. And he also wrote Debt Cleanse. He is the founder and chairman uh, and CEO of AHP Servicing. He is George Newberry. George, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks so much, Roger, for having me and for that uh, kind introduction. You got it. And you know what? I mean, there's so much more. I didn't even know where, you know, what to, to harp on in that intro because you've done a lot of cool stuff. So I'm going to ask some things I already know the answers to, but that's irrelevant because not everybody that's listening knows. So maybe just capsulize, you know, where are you from and, and what your background is and, you know, what, what you did as a kid and what kind of ultimately, uh, you know, got you to the beginning stages of like high school and all after that and all that stuff. Sure. So I was born in uh, Los Angeles, California. I always felt an urge to a need to prove myself and to kind of set lofty goals and then work as hard as I could to achieve them. And, you know, that started out with what in hindsight were maybe pretty modest goals, but at the time it was a big deal. When I was seven years old, I said, I'm going to become a paper boy. And, uh, and, and there's nothing too extraordinary about being, being a paper boy, but at seven years old, that was fairly young. Uh, and I remember flagging down the, um, the driver. There was a gentleman who was delivering them by, by car in my neighborhood. And, and I, I flagged him down and said, Hey, you know, I want to do this. And he, he asked me my age and asked me if my parents were okay with it. I said, yes, yes. Uh, but I was seven years old and he ended up giving me that paper route. And then, then I thought, Hey, if I'm delivering the Herald Examiner, which was the one I delivered, why not deliver the competing paper at the same time, which was that evening outlook. So I flagged that guy down and got that job too. So that was, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of a fun beginning and I, I got a kick out of it and made some money, which was actually really fun uh, for me. You know, I get like, it was modest money, but it was fun. Got it. And I think you had, were you doing popsicles, ice cream? Yeah. And that evolved. Then I, I used that money. So it, it's been a, an evolution of me rolling my money. So for my paperweight earnings, I decided to buy a bicycle. It was a, a bike, which was attached to a freezer, which was an ice cream, kind of like an ice cream truck, except on, on in bike form. And I would ride around my neighborhood every afternoon in the summers and sell ice cream. And then also in the uh, in the fall, I would go take it to my, um, my school at football games and, uh, and Friday night football, I'd be there selling ice cream. So that was, uh, again, a lot of fun, um, and a good way, a good entree, uh, to this. And, and when I turned 13, I was, I realized I was 
eligible for a work permit. So I, I got a work permit for my school to work as a busboy at a, uh, at a restaurant. And that was, you know, my first kind of real job with a paycheck. And that was, uh, a lot of fun. I worked as many hours as they would let me. And I used that money to start a record company for my parents' garage, which is what I did. And I started managing some punk bands. Uh, these were, this is the early 80s, Southern California. And, uh, you know, put out albums by Shattered Faith, by Circle One, by Red Scare, by Stalag 13. These are bands that I liked. And so I just said, hey, let's do a record. And I'd use my money to pay for studio time, pay to press the records. And then we'd, uh, we distribute those and there was a very niche audience. So we were able to, um, you know, do mail order and get it into different stores and, uh, and had a lot of, some of them, I booked tours for some of them all from my parents' garage. So it was, uh, it was, it was a, lot, a very fun period and it kind of, you know, it was business, you know, it was basic business. It was, you know, I didn't really know how to do any of this, but I, I learned to ask, not be afraid to ask questions, uh, of anybody. And it's funny, the people that you could call, or that I call it. And I even do now when I don't understand something, I will call somebody. And if you reach them or on LinkedIn, LinkedIn's great. I go on LinkedIn and I, you know, I just find somebody and I mess who's probably knows what I'm looking for. And they will, it's surprising about how many people simply give you the answer or, or give you 15 or 20 minutes of their time in order to share whatever expertise they have. And then you, you know, I try and return the favor whenever somebody, somebody reaches out to me, but there is a, uh, I learned to ask questions and, uh, and ask for what I wanted. And, uh, that lots of times, uh, opened doors that, that probably shouldn't have been open to a 15 year old. Was I wrong when I said the circle jerks, you just said circle one is my recollection failing me. You know, record slightly failing you. So I worked with the circle jerks. I worked with black flag. I, I, uh, I, uh, these were bands that, um, I interviewed Black, Black Flag for a magazine that I wrote, I published a, a cassette magazine, if you can re- remember, they had a few of those. Uh, and then, uh, but Circle, Circle Jerks, I never, were never my label, uh, but Circle One was. I got it. Okay. Well, uh, my bad. Um, you oh, know, okay. I got, I got, I got the circle part. <laughs> I, <laughs> okay. I was so impressed by that, you know, reading because I'm like, who starts a, a record, you know, label when they're like 15? I was just absolutely blown away just by the notion that you would try to take something like that on was just amazing. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to go take a half a step to the side for a minute and, and just because I feel like it and it's this is that throughout your book, you talked about, you know, just, um, and these are probably the wrong words, but bear with just the notion of like, not like fitting a mold, fitting in is a kid like that and feeling kind of part, which is why you were able to identify with the punk, you know, rock guys that were like typically from the same thing. They weren't mainstream. And I'm just wondering uh, because you clearly had very, very loving parents, which you elucidate quite well. So wh- what what was all that about? Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. I always felt like I didn't really fit in. I didn't, you know, there's always like the cool kids in class and, and uh, yeah, or the one, ones are really good at sports. And I was pretty good at sports, but I was, I was awkward socially. Um, I was um, pretty scared of girls and it just, what just didn't fit in. And uh, one thing I liked about the punk crowd is that it was very welcoming to, to all the misfits and uh, not to say misfit, but everybody, it was all inclusive. Everybody who, uh, you know, regardless of background, income, race, uh, sexual orientation, people were, uh, were welcomed in it uh, by and large. Uh, and that's something that I liked. And, uh, and, and, and we're less concerned with being pop. We're not so concerned with being popular or being 
part of the in crowd. Uh, and that's something that I, I certainly identified with. I, I mean, my dad, both of my parents were immigrants. My, my mom came here from, uh, from England. My dad came here from Argentina. They met in St. Louis and, uh, and, uh, eventually got married. And, and, uh, and that was the, um, so I think, I think a lot of that came from them. I don't think they felt like they fitted in. Uh, we were, some of our neighbors called us the gypsies. My parents, the, were very lenient in parenting, uh, and, and, uh, allowed us, you know, and I don't think it was that uncommon in the seventies where, you know, just be home by dark. Uh, but outside of that, we were just riding our bikes in the neighborhood, playing with other kids. And it was, and that was common then. Um, but they kind of let us learn on our own. There were five kids and they let us kind of explore, make our own mistakes, which I've certainly made several. And then also, you know, learn from those, which I think is, you learn a lot more from your failures than your successes. Uh, so that happened and, and they were just supportive regardless of what we did, which is, you know, looking back, it was, there was never, Hey, do this, do that, push you into this, push you into that. It was like, if this was what you want to do, then that's fine. You know, I went to them and said at 16, and this was actually a tough ask. Uh, you know, I, I kind of don't want to go to school anymore. I want to focus on my business and, uh, I'm turning 16 in a couple of months. Can I, can I uh, take the GED? And so as soon as I turn 16, I can stop going to school. And that was, uh, and I was in, uh, yeah, 10th grade and they, uh, and they said, okay. And I'll tell you, my, my mom, she had to leave school early uh, because she was uh, born in a World War. I mean, she was um, in World War II. She was at boarding school, but her parents couldn't afford it once the war came. And so she went home to help help her family. And, uh, and, and then she never went back to school. And uh, so she was pretty supportive. My dad came around too. And, and uh, I mean, he went to college and, and whatnot. So they, they, I, I don't know. I, th- I think they showed me and set an example that kind of go to school, don't go to school. I mean, uh, I was really good at school up until that point, but I started losing interest uh, pretty fast. Uh, once my business, I was learning more from business. So they, they allowed me that. And I, I think that's, you know, I sometimes talk with my wife. We have two, 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 uh, young boys and you know, what, what do they, what did they ask us to drop out of school when they're 16? And, and, um, I would, uh, I think it's whatever they want to do, as long as they're doing something that they enjoy, that they're passionate about, then I, I think we support them. And, and that's what my parents did. Uh, I did find that to be uh, very, very interesting. Had I asked my mom at the time, she would have said, that's a joke. You, you gotta be kidding. <laughs> There's no way that would, that would have flown. Um, but, but, uh, anyway, that's not relevant to your story. So. Tell me what your foray into real estate was. And, you know, I mean, I, I forgot to say in the intro, you ultimately got to like 4,000 units. I mean, you're, you're a guy that like determined you, you fear doesn't uh, get in your way. How, 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 what was your foot in the door though? Sure. So there was an interim step between punk rock and real estate where I, I uh, in 84, they had a, uh, the Olympics were in Los Angeles. So I was inspired by the bike race and I said, Hey, I want to become a bike racer. And, uh, from, and I, I really, I was probably at that point about 18, 19 years old. I had no experience in bike racing, but I went out and bought a bike. In fact, my dad had bought me a bike, uh, for my birthday. And so I said, uh, to get to work and I said, well, I'm just going to start becoming a bike racer. And, uh, Four years later, in 1988, I was in the Olympic trials. And uh, so kind of, you know, I bought all the books I could, learned everything I could about uh, about bike racing. And I, I rose to the ranks. Uh, and, you know, by four years in, I was on, on a trade team uh, traveling around the country. Uh, but you don't make too much money racing bikes. So I noticed that one of my teammates' girlfriends always had a nice car, seemed pretty comfortable. So 
Uh, I asked her what she did, and she shared that she was a, a mortgage loan officer. So she helped me. I, she helped me get my real estate license, uh, and I knew nothing about this business. But she, um, once I got my license, she had recently been promoted, and she helped me get a job at the company she worked for, and that began uh, my real estate career, which started in a, in a cubicle in a contact center at a mortgage company in California. And I would simply, people would call in and they were interested, you know, what's the rate or, or different, different questions. And I would uh, answer their questions and then try to schedule them to meet in person with a loan officer. And when they did that and the loan closed, I would get $150. And that was basically the, uh, the deal. It was a commission only. And, uh, I started out probably a little bit on the slow side because I had no idea. The, the rally is the people that were calling knew more than me, but I got there at eight in the morning. I left there at eight at night. I answered every call I could. I realized that the more calls you answer, the the more money you're going to make because just the, 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 the numbers. And I did extremely diligent follow-up. If somebody called in and said, call me in a month or call me in two months, I would call them in a month or call them in two months. And that served me well. So six months later, I was top producer. And uh, that was the beginning of my real estate career. I was I became loan officer, branch manager. And then uh, two years later, I started my, my own mortgage company, which is still in business. Uh, it's a long time ago. It's more, more than 30 years later. Tell me if my memory's working. Um, you like figure you didn't take lunches, right? I mean, wasn't that something like that? That's Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I'd run to the restroom. I would <laughs> take my lunch. Literally, uh, it was kind of funny, but at the time, I, I don't care what people think. I'm, I'm, if I can get back to my desk, I can answer the, I answer more phone calls. And I would, and the others, yeah, my team members would go out to lunch and spend an hour. They'd go to doctor's appointment during the week, and I thought that doesn't make any sense. I brought my lunch. I would be on my desk, and I'd eat it, eat it, eat at my desk. And people say, "Hey, I'm going to lunch. Cover for me, I'm, please." I mean, let, let me get those phone calls. It was a lot of, I mean, it was a game to me. It really was. Though actually everything, the whole office is a little bit like a game. It's like Monopoly. And it was fun. And, and you know, then I was living at home and I got to the point where I was making like 10 grand a month and I was living at home and I was like, I mean, it was, it was fun. I started helping out my parents um, and it was just a, a very comfortable um, situation. It's something where, you know, I could, uh, I could afford to take on new challenges, which, which is inevitably what I did. Where, where, you know, the, the, the pattern, you know, that, that was recognizable or is recognizable. It's so obvious is that you're incredibly driven. Where do you think that comes from? There's something inside of me, which pushes me to constantly prove myself and, and more than anything to myself, uh, that I can do something. I, I think with bike racing was when it, it crystallized that the, the, there is a pattern, which you can see all the way back. But it was, uh, you know, I'd always think, okay, I, I didn't start bike racing until I was 18 years old. And, and many people had been racing for, for a decade before me. But I always thought, okay, if, I, if they're human and I'm human, I can do that. And I just have to figure out what they're doing and then do it. And, uh, and then figure out how to do it better. And that was, uh, and so the same thing in business. You can always kind of reverse engineer what somebody else is doing that's successful and break it down into simple steps. Because to say going from you know, a non-bike racer to four years later being in the Olympic trials, there's a lot of step. That's a, that's a big vision. Uh, but if you break it down into step by step by step, like tiny little steps, then it becomes digestible. And you say, okay, well, I, I, I can't really figure out how I'm going to get all the way there, but I can figure out how to do this. And then to get to this step and then to get, you know, in, in spike racing, you go through different categories, same in business. You know, I, my first apartment investment 
was a four unit apartment building. And, you know, that was a big deal um, for me, my first property. But then I thought, well, then I got one. And here's the, this is the problem uh, with whatever's in my mind. I said, well, it's really exciting. I'll own four unit apartment building. But then I did it. And I was like, well, you know, you get like, let me prove something else. And then I bought 19 units and then I bought 60 units and then I bought 298 units. And then eventually I bought 1100 units. You know, I kept always wanted to go bigger and bigger and bigger. And, uh, and, and I'll tell you, it's not, you know, it could be laudable. It could be like the drive is, 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 um, is commendable. Uh, but also at the same time, the, the problem with, however my psyche is wired is that you give up things. I mean, there's trade-offs. You can, uh, you know, certainly socially, I've, uh, I've probably compromised, um, you know, time that I could spend with family and friends over my life. And that, that's, that's, uh, I think that's the, um, with kids now, uh, I, I, I go through extraordinary efforts, both mental, mentally and physically a little bit, uh, to, um, to balance, to balance that time so I can spend as much time with the kids as possible. It's, having kids, I have two twin boys. Uh, they turn two in a few months, I mean, in a few weeks. And uh, that having them has really been transformative to me. I think it's the first time in my life where I'm really like feel, feel driven to, um, to really balance things out. Uh, I can't uh, look back on business accomplishments, athletic accomplishments. I mean, they're, they're, they're all fun. But they were fun to achieve, but now I I really have a in my mind something where I, I want to spend time with the kids. I want them to be successful, uh, and it's not saying like it's, I want them to be successful in whatever they want to do, whether they want to whatever they want to do. It's not um not like I want them to. I just want them to be good people, and uh, and I think more than anything, I, the way I can do that is by spending my wife and I spending as much time as possible with them and supporting them with what whatever they want to do. And the reality is, you can see in my book. I would change every few years. I'd say, oh, well, now I want to do this. So I want to do that. And then I just pour everything into that. And I'll confess that I'm still that way. Uh, the only thing that's different today is when I start a business and I and it gets going, I find somebody else who has probably more expertise in that particular business than me to run it and perpetuate it uh, rather than me just jumping to something else and kind of leaving it leaving it alone. I mean, I'll, t- I'll tell you on the record company, I was watching a, a movie on Netflix about, it was earlier this year. And in the movie, I suddenly, wait, there's a song that I produced, one of the records that I put out, it was in the movie and I was on the soundtrack. And I was like, how did this happen? Now, I, after I, I, I moved on from bike racing, I, I gave the recordings uh, to the, to the bands and, and they gave them the rights because it was, we had sold some records. We had some fun. I made a little bit of money. But, you know, there's been a resurgence in interest in that era. And so one of the bands went and, and sold their um, sold that to um, some group, which then was licensing it to Netflix, which is uh, great. C- good. Congratulations to them. And uh, but I, I could have kind of like maximized my long term benefits from some of my earlier accomplishments. But I kind of just moved on. I don't do that anymore. Last 15, 10, 15 years, I've been much more diligent about kind of building a um building long-term. So what I build, I keep and, and, and have other people help uh, perpetuate it. Got it. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth 
largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. Well, hey, you know what? It's forgivable. You were like a teenager, for goodness uh, sakes. What got you from doing smaller stuff? And that's a relative term because I look, I see 60 units. I would never have the cojones to do 60. Well, maybe when I was a kid, maybe, but certainly not now. What got you into the Midwest? You know, what what kind of got you, hey, man, the, the numbers don't work here, whatever it was, and you wound up in, in of all crazy places, Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> Yeah, there was a turning point in my real estate career, um, good for good and for bad. Uh, in 1998, I bought a building, and this building had uh, maybe six years below before had sold for four and a half million dollars. The building it was 298 units was in such terrible condition that it had been targeted by the Los Angeles's slum housing task force, which uh, ended up putting that that owner in jail. Uh, so he sold it to another guy for two and a half million. Now the buyer. He also went to jail. So they sold it to another guy for two million bucks and he went to jail. So at this point, three owners all end up in jail. The progressively gets sold for lower and lower price. The property was broadly marketed for 850,000, 298 units downtown Los Angeles. Uh, just the numbers are ridiculously just ridiculous. Uh, and, but no one wanted to buy it. It was on the market and no one was buying it. So me. Uh, I, I'd done a bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, of turnarounds, and, and what I would do, I, I'd always buy like the worst properties I could find, worst in terms of just the most challenged is probably the better word. And then I would I would be very hands on. I turn them around and I'd add value, and that that is how um, how I was successful. So uh, this one though was a really big challenge, and so I um, I remember the inspectors. I knew some of the inspectors on the task force because they had worked with them on prior buildings, and they they told me don't buy this thing. They said, you've done well on your smaller projects. This one, we're going to end up adversarial. This, don't buy it. And of course, I, did, I wanted to prove myself, so I bought it. And after I bought it, I met with all the inspectors and they said, okay, well, you got six months. If you can get this thing done in six months, uh, you're good. But if not, we can't selectively prosecute and we're going to end up, you know, we have to take action. And so but each what would, month, what would, be, what would the action be for? Like, what what would the transgression be? And by the way, I'm hearing like three thousand dollars a door or something. <laughs> you bought? You are. It's a, it was insane price. Less than three thousand yeah. dollars a door. Right. I, I mean, it's it's just unbelievable pricing for a building that's still there in downtown LA. What would you get fine? I mean, because I mean, clearly you're buying it in a certain state. Six months isn't. It's not state is in California, but a certain condition. In six months is no time at all. So like what would have been the transgression or violation or what have you? Well, unfortunately, in owning a building, there's strict liability is what I learned doing on this building. So even if you didn't cause the problem, if you own it, you're responsible for it. And so the problems were things like non-working fire sprinklers. There were um, electrical violations, health violations. There were... Um, I mean, uh, missing fire extinguishers, stuff that, I mean, it was an occupied property. So sometimes people would just take the fire extinguishers. Um, <laughs> and so it wasn't, it was, it was a chat. Part of the challenge was fixing it, but then actually keeping it fixed. So we, you know, two things, we had to rehab the property, but also rehab, um, you know, the, the tenancy. So we evicted the troublemakers. Um, 
and had success doing that. And then we, we right away, we embarked on, on, on getting this thing fixed up. And those inspectors came by every month and they were like, Hey, you're doing pretty, you're doing really well. Um, because I was probably was surprising them. I was actually getting this thing done and I was there every single day. And we, um, and thought I was doing pretty well until a friend of mine, six months later, um, he called me. And I remember it was New Year's Eve and he called me and said, Hey, you're in the paper. I said, for what? And he said, you know, 38 criminal charges filed against Redondo Beach Man, which was me. And he went on to read me the article. And uh, that was, uh, I remember, but, you know, my stomach got a little twisted. And uh, I, I uh, but the first thing I thought about was, was my parents and my mother sitting down with a morning cup of tea, opening the Los Angeles Times, only to read about her son's, the criminal charges filed against her son. So I, I, uh, I got in my car, went to my parents' house, and and I found the paper, which luckily had been unopened. I, <laughs> I, I, I opened the paper, grabbed the metro section, which had the offend, offending article, and uh, and took it along with an apple and walked out the door and said bye. And so they, I, they never really knew about those the severity of those challenges. I told them later after it was remedied, but uh, at the moment I, I couldn't have them. But then I still had to deal with it. So I, 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 uh, I couldn't reach my attorney. This is uh, New Year's Eve. It was a Friday. And I didn't reach until Monday. And that was, uh, you know, my stomach was churning quite a bit that weekend. Uh, but on Monday, I called him and said, hey, take a look at the paper, this article. And he, uh, he called the city attorney and the city attorney said, hey, you know, your client's been doing a good job, but you know, we can't selectively prosecute, but we're open to a plea bargain. And so I, uh, as he related, I'd have to pay a $10,000 fine, which was fine, but I would be on probation for three years. And, you know, probation, I envision like going to, going to a probation office every, every, uh, every week checking in. And he said, no, 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 it's not like that. You know, it's summary probation, which is the lightest form of probation. And basically that means that as long as you stay out of trouble and you get this building done, then uh, they're not going to take further action. So it took me 11 more months. Uh, so what I thought I could do in six months actually took uh, 17 months. But 11 months later, there was a day where these inspectors all came out on the same day and could not find a single violation. At that point, they signed it off out of the Slum Housing Task Force, which had it had been in there for years. I promptly sold the building, made over a million bucks. It was a big success. Uh, I was... But I think it was um, kind of a double-edged sword. Did I, I, I was now, the success was great. Money was great. But now I was emboldened. I, I really thought that I could succeed where anyone else failed. So that took me to the Midwest. The market had largely recovered in Southern California. And I had, I thought, hey, there's some big opportunities. I, my plan, which I executed, was to buy the biggest buildings I could find that are in the most terrible condition that I could find, most troubled. So they have the greatest opportunity to add value. And that's what I did. So, you know, uh, a few months later, I was in Kansas City, uh, Missouri at a, a courthouse steps. I bought for, I bought 233 units for a million six, right in downtown Kansas City. There were eight murders there the last year, in the prior year. And uh, that was um, my next target. And, you know, I'll tell you that building, I moved into it and oversaw a rehab and a, a, a lease up that took maybe a year and a half. And then uh, Wells Fargo, I spent about a million, maybe a little more than a million on the rehab. And 
Wells Fargo came in, they appraised it for eight and a half million and they gave me a loan of $5 million. And I was into it maybe three, just over $3 million. So that was, uh, I got all my money back plus, and then some, and I thought, well, this, I got to keep playing this game. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun and it was rewarding. Uh, so I kept buying these very challenged buildings. I, I kept trying to go bigger and bigger and bigger, which is what I did. But I found myself eventually at, in a, a bankruptcy court auction for Woodland Meadows Apartments, which is 1,100 units in Columbus, Ohio. And I ended up buying the building. And this build, this build, I shouldn't say building, it was a whole complex. It was 54 units, 122 buildings. It was almost like a mini city. There were By the time we finished our lease up, there were thousands of people that lived there. It was nicknamed Uzi Alley and Uzi after the gun. And it was just infested with drugs, gangs. Um, it was completely out of control. And the uh, very much in the public eye, and it backed more so because it backed into Bexley, which is one of the highest income neighborhoods in Columbus. And then here you have Woodland Meadows right outside the airport, uh, right when people come into the city. It was uh, something where um, something had to be done. And, you know, I came in uh, and the media was all over this thing. And here's this guy from California. What's he doing buying this property? Uh, he has no idea. And then when I moved in, they were like, oh, this. Well, they actually were, that was commendable. They are, it was perceived as commendable. Hey, this guy's actually moving into the property. Uh, so maybe he, he's definitely different than the other people. No, none of, none of the prior ownership groups, uh, which were usually companies. It wasn't just a, a, a person would have thought about moving into with the meadows. And uh, yet I did. Uh, and so I took the accolades, but the reality is I was kind of cheap. So I didn't want to spend the money at a hotel. I prefer to just stay in the, in the, in, in a unit at with the meadows. In the deal in, in LA, uh, when was that building built? That's my first question. That's a good question. I'm, I'm guessing 30s, 40s. Um, it was an older building, but had uh, had fallen into disrepair in the prior years. Got it. And, and uh, what was the name of the neighborhood? Skid Row. It was in Skid Row. Oh, my God. Okay. And, that, and then how old were you when you sold that deal? I bought it in 1998. I sold it uh, right around 2000. So I had a... Uh, I was going to be um, around th- almost 35. To make a million bucks is a big deal. Okay. That was a huge deal uh, for me. I was, I, was, uh, yeah. I was pretty much still living at home. So uh, I didn't have many expenses. It was, it, it was, uh, and at 35, I, so that's another, you know, misfit. There's uh, not, I got along really well with my parents. They were getting older. They liked, I think they liked, I know they liked having me at home. Um, and uh, an immigrant in my dad's, um, Argentina, it's very common for the kids as they turn adults and even enter their twenties and thirties for them to stay at home until they get married. And, uh, here that is quite uncommon. Um, but I like being my parents and we, uh, I don't know, maybe it's because they, they were just always supportive and they never, never pushed me to do stuff. So I, I wasn't in a hurry to leave. And, and, uh, I think, uh, the five kids at that point, I was the only one still there. So I'll ask you a question nobody's ever going to ask you in a podcast because only I dwell down into these details mm-hmm. as I pat myself on the back and I'll bore everybody else to tears. <laughs> but the name Newberry, you, you, it doesn't sound like your dad's family is from Argentina. So it sounds like somewhere in Europe. Where where, the, where do they hail from? Yeah, you're absolutely right. They were from uh, England uh, several generations back. They immigrated to to Argentina and you know then then married, you know, got married and it kind of became part. There's a, there's a huge European influence in, in, uh, in Buenos Aires and, um, how it happened. Uh, notable is, uh, my name, Jorge Newberry is a, um, with one R 
is a famous name in in Argentina. There was an aviator named with my name uh, who is my great granduncle or great great granduncle who was a, um, a famous aviator in a pioneering aviator in Argentina who died in a ballooning accident. And since then, he is uh, has been a hero. He there's a stadium built after him. A, a bullet, one of the big boulevards is named after him, and the airport in the city is named after him. So, uh, and it's a fairly uncommon name. Uh, so what's happened is the firstborn in, in our family is always named Jorge. And so my dad, I'm Jorge, my dad's Jorge, and, you know, go further up the chain is this aviator Jorge. And my son, firstborn, is, is also Jorge. So we've perpetrated, per, not perpetrated, perpetuated uh, that convention. And, and so that's where they came from. My, and my mom was simply uh, from England. Okay. Have I been pronouncing your name wrong this entire interview? No, I use George. Uh, it's really Jorge, uh, but I just use George. Here's the problem. Because uh, nobody knows how to pronounce it. Uh, yeah, when I was a kid, no one knew how to, uh, teachers couldn't even pronounce it, which surprising. Today, most people know how to pronounce it. But I don't speak Spanish, which is uh, unfor- very unfortunate. We, there are five kids in our family. The oldest and the youngest are fluent in Spanish. And then the three in the middle, including me, are not. And you know, my dad said that he would try to teach us and we would laugh at him, which I felt feel bad about. And, and eventually he just stopped. Um, and, and that's regrettable because speaking Spanish would be a huge uh, benefit. But the point is, if I go around saying, oh, I'm Jorge Newberry, people are, it's, it's not a stretch to think, oh, he speaks Spanish and they start. And it's like, well, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so it's just, George is easier. Uh, and gets, keeps me out of those awkward situations. But now, uh, you know, the, another notable thing, and my dad immigrated here in the fifties uh, from Argentina and his, you know, at that time it was, um, uh, you know, the, the, he wanted to Americanize himself as much as possible. So he started calling himself George. He tried to you know, minimize his accent and, and Newberry, the name Newberry is probably helpful to that. Uh, so that, that's what he did. In fact, uh, a good friend of mine, when I was growing up, her father was, uh, her family was Jewish and her last name was when her family came over was Bronstein and they short shortened it to Braun. So I think in the fifties, this was very common to try to, Americanize yourselves, try to fit in, get a job and, and, and live the American dream by, by kind of suppressing some of your identity. And I know Allison, who's, who, who's my friend, she would, uh, we often talked to him. It was, it was odd at the time how that happened, but it was just, I think it's, it's, it's what was common in the fifties, uh, in order to, to succeed and, and it's totally understandable. But now, because I think my father unfortunately thought that if, uh, you know, if he goes, if he, kept his accent, if he calls himself Jorge, it would limit his chances for success in our country. And same with when, when I was born, you know, that being named Jorge and, and calling me Jorge would, would minimize my chances. Now, hopefully America has changed because my, uh, my firstborn son is named Jorge and we actually call him Jorge. And uh, we're hoping that that does not um, uh, constrain his, his, uh, his future success in our country. Let's hope not. Okay, there you are, adjacent to to the iconic Bexley in Uzi Alley with 1,100 units. And, you know, just what you did, just taking on these projects is just like much less moving in. And I I can't even imagine 
even stepping foot on projects like that, because having grown up in Cleveland, I kind of have an idea what you're talking about. The fact you take these on just you had no, well, maybe you did have fear, but you kind of had no fear, if you know what I mean. So what happened, man? Tell tell the story. Oh, um, it was a challenge. Um, but one that I actually, I had a plan and I executed it. I was, um, the plan is always to, to get rid of the troublemakers. So we, we promptly evicted everybody who we identified as, as causing trouble. We then, um, we started renovations on the property, but this property, it was bigger than anything I'd done. And it actually came with its own its own security force. They had twelve armed security people. They had a fleet of patrol cars, and uh, what was a little bit right away challenging was that the tenancy tenants were mostly African American and Hispanic, and the security force was all white. And it seemed to me that. Uh, the security was almost aggravating or escalating situations when they arose as opposed to diffusing them. And this was exemplified by, by in, in the security office, I remember going in one day and doing a double take and as I realized there was actually a jail cell on our property in our security office, uh, which was just, I, I was astounded and and appalled. Uh, and, and there was a guy actually in the jail cell when I saw it and, and I asked, well, what's going on here? And they said, well, he, we suspect he was dealing drugs, dealing marijuana. And I just said, just let him out. Um, because what they did is they put him in the, the security would make citizens arrest, put him in the jail cell and then call the, the, the real police to come out and arrest him. And I couldn't be a part of that. So that was the last person that was in that jail. So we, we're not going to do that anymore. Um, and we, he was let go. And, and then I made the decision to let go of all the security force to let them all go. And I remember the media predicted absolute bedlam at the property. Like this is, what is this guy doing? Has he lost his mind? Um, but the plan was I had a handful of tenants uh, and myself, and we became a, the community patrol. And we would actually uh, patrol the, um, the property. And when there was a situation, uh, we would go to it and talk to the tenants and try to defuse it. And this was probably idealistic, but it actually did start to work within uh, a few weeks, we had other members of the community who joined the patrol. And, uh, you know, what's notable about, especially a low-income housing complex, is that most of the tenants there just want to go about their lives. They want a safe place to live. They, they don't want trouble. And then there's always a, or not always, but in this case, there were a handful of troublemakers. And we were evicting them, and we went through with the evictions. Uh, and But I, I think what, what was really challenging was we would, uh, this was by now it was summertime and we would be patrolling the property and there'd be corners where there'd be maybe 20 or 30 young men, mostly young African-American men hanging on the corner. And they weren't necessarily into any trouble, but some tenants would complain, have guests coming over. They can't, they feel intimidated uh, by this big group of people up front. And so we'd ask them to leave and they would they would, but they just move like a block or two and they'd still be on our property. So it didn't really work. Uh, and, and then they kept ask, they kept asking us when we asked them to move, they would say, well, give us a job. Give us a, give me a job. Give me a job. And at first that, you know, those requests kind of just, um, slid off our back. But then I thought, well, why don't we give them jobs? Uh, and so we came up with the idea of we, we had a community center and we said, Hey, 
if we created the teach program where some of the contractors would come and, and teach the, 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 the participants how to, you know, how to paint, how to do electric work, plumbing, uh, demo work, whatever they wanted, landscaping, whatever they wanted to do. And we had, um, we had them come in. And the first time we did it, we said, if you come for two weeks, we guarantee we, and you show up every day on time, we guarantee we'll give you a job. And uh, that was, and it was, a, which I, we thought was a good idea. Cause if you say, Hey, I'm going to give you a job and then they don't show up and they show up late every day. So here, just go through the program, show up every day on time, you get a job. And uh, that was their test. And, and first, they're probably literally the first class are maybe five people. And at the end of the class, we all they all got jobs. So pretty soon word traveled. And then we had like 50 people every class showing up. And we had the contractors coming out. We had people from the community coming out, talking to them. And it, it really turned into a, uh, we had politicians. Um, it was really turned into uh and exciting. It was a, it was really exciting. And, and the, and the, the young men who were participating, young men and some women, uh, who were participating, instead of showing up with baggy pants, some of them started, wait, I'm going to dress up for this. They start dressing up like they were going to church. It was transformational, uh, to, or it, it was astounding to see the transformation in some of these young men. And then they get jobs, they join the crews, and some of them were just doing extraordinary work. The contractors were amazed at how good some of these people were at their at their uh, work. And many of them had criminal records, but they just were, they shared with me that they go to Arby's, they go to Walmart, they go to McDonald's, and they could not get a job because their criminal record, no one would give them a chance. So the fact that they had an opportunity here to actually make a paycheck which was in many cases significantly less than they were making when they were doing uh, bad stuff. They uh, they really appreciated it, and it showed in the effort that they put up. Uh, and this word traveled. The media started covering. Hey, what's going? What's this? Is what's happening? And then, and then other companies in the community said, Hey, we want to hire hire these uh, these young men and women. So then we they started working at, at other businesses. It was really a. Uh, some of them, I remember one of them, we made him a loan to buy some landscaping equipment. He did our landscaping, but then he did the landscaping uh, for others in the community, including Arby's. And he told me that he went to Arby's, the roast beef place, and uh, he couldn't get a job uh, as an employee. But now that he came back as a contractor, they don't check the criminal records for contractors and he got a job. And, and that was, it was just revolutionary. Today, more than 20 years later, some of those companies that were started from that project are still in business. It's really exciting that that pivotal time in these, in these men's lives, these men and women's lives, they, they got an opportunity. They seized the opportunity completely their choice, but they seized the opportunity and, and created a, a, a different trajectory than they were on. And it was really, it, it was a really exciting thing to be a part of. I, I look back on it very fondly and I'm still friends with some people on Facebook and, you know, that kind of get updates here and there, but it was a lot of fun and it was transformative for the property because now that money that was being generated for the rehab that we're spending, it was being recycled into the empowering the families that were on the property instead of going to the suburbs, you know, the contractors, you know, people come in during the day, work on the property, and then take the paychecks home to the suburbs. So really an exciting time. And, um, and a lot, it, just by all accounts, a, a successful uh, venture, but it ended up with a, um, with an unhappy ending, uh, which was unfortunate <laughs> as, as you read, as I did read. Is it even possible to distill that down into, I mean, it's such a long story with political cross currents and et cetera. Is there a way of uh, condensing it down into a handful of minutes? Or, yeah. Or- yeah. I, I'll tell you 
Yes, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, so what happened uh, is the property got hit by an ice storm uh, on Christmas Eve uh, 2004, and it was the largest federally declared dis- disaster in Ohio's history, and it triggered this extraordinary sequence of events in which I lost everything and ended up $26 million in debt. And that was, um, and I made a lot of mistakes in all this, And but because of the scope of the project, it was just staggering, and it ended up unwinding everything that I built up over the last, over the prior, um, you know, 15 years. It ended up, uh, you know, I lost, I lost uh, in a nutshell, the city at some point decided that they wanted this property and they were going to stop at nothing to get the property from me or take the property from me, which is exactly what they did. You know, the insurance company uh, didn't pay. I had to sue them. And uh, eventually they settled $32 million, which talks about the, the uh, and that was the discounted settlement on this down, on this um, on this loss, which was uh, approached to $50 million in total. I, I had to take a, a discount, but that it, it was just an extraordinary, um, ch- extraordinary challenging time in my life. I'd always been successful. And, and when I, even when I, I, things weren't going as I expected, I'd work really hard and typically I could still eke out the success. And here, just the harder I worked, the worse it got. And, uh, and that was, that was that I, I ended up, I was truly broke, um, ended up, um, yeah, that, that was, that was the end of it. <laughs> I don't mean to be laughing. It's, it's an amazing story. Um, and I ask you to like, you know, I mean, there's pages and pages and pages in the book about it, but you know, look, look, we're, 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 you know, this is a podcast. Did you go from there to, to remind me you went from there to Cincinnati? How did you pick, what was your first step out of that? Tell me what you did. So I remember in 2006, was when the property was closed down and eventually demolished and is now owned by the city. And when it was, I was the last person to leave. My wife and I were the last person to leave. We weren't married yet. And I'm surprised she kind of tolerated all this, but we packed everything up in a truck, which was Woodland Meadows truck. And we moved to a, another low income property. They owned about two hours away in Dayton, Ohio, which was at that point also in foreclosure. And we moved in there and we're there I had to get away from Columbus, but it wasn't far enough. I was there for about six months and then I moved. I had to get out of state and just get out of, from Ohio. And uh, I did that. I moved to New Orleans for about a year. But then I always try to look for the silver lining, like, okay, in all this chaos, what did I get from it? And I got an extraordinary education in how to deal with overwhelming debt. I was in immense debt, $26 million. I guarantee, personally guaranteed almost every loan I took. And now they all, you know, they all came, uh, came uh, trying to collect from me. I was sued multiple times. I had, hundred, I had millions of dollars in judgments against me. My credit was wrecked. Um, but now this was 2007. And I started hearing about all the families across America who were struggling. And I shouldn't say all, all across America, not all families, but all across America, families were struggling and at risk of foreclosure and facing, uh, you know, losing their home, which for most families is their, is their biggest asset. So I, I, I thought, well, the experience that I had would be beneficial to them. And so I started a nonprofit. It was myself and two people um, in, in Cincinnati in 2008. And we, American Home Under Preservation, the goal was to help families at risk of foreclosure. And we had thousands of families come to us. And unfortunately, we we're only able to help a a small percentage. And in fact, it wasn't successful as a nonprofit. We, we mostly because the banks and the servicers were just not receptive to solutions that made sense, not only for them, but for the homeowners as well. So we changed, we pivoted and all these things, my 
you know, through my life, there's always a pivot. When things don't work out as planned, you kind of just pivot it and eventually pivot, pivot, pivot until you find the path forward. So we made a pivot and became a for-profit and started buying defaulted mortgages from banks at big discounts. And that was the pivot that worked. Uh, we bought more than 10,000 mortgages in the last decade. We'd buy these at big discounts. We then went to the families, shared the discounts with them. If they wanted to stay in the home, they could stay in the home. If they didn't want the home anymore, we'd give them cash for a deed in lieu, try to avoid foreclosure, and uh, just repeat that process over and over. And you know, one of the things that I learned uh, during my, when I was heavily in debt was that creditors would come to you and say, hey, you owe us a million dollars, you gotta pay the million. And, uh, and it's due now and, and whatnot. And if you don't have the million dollars, it's kind of like an impossible request. So we did it differently. We would go to the families and say, Hey, you owe us a hundred thousand dollars. Your home's only worth 50. Here are the solutions. You can settle in full for 45,000, a little bit less than what it's owed. If you want to stay in the home, you could pay us up front $2,000 and we'll forgive the rest of the delinquency, which is often tens of thousands of dollars. And we'll drop your principal to 50 and drop your payment. And then you can stay in the home. Or if you don't want any of these, you don't want to stay in the home, we'll give you $2,000 and you sign the deed and we're done. So it's like one, two, three, it's like the, the, the drive-through menu, you know, which do you want? Uh, and people would, it, it, to make it that simple and kind of cover all the, you know, if you want to stay, if you don't want to stay, that's what I, I wish creditors had done to me. It would make it a lot easier rather than fighting in court over, over the collection. So we became very transparent and very um, just easy to work with uh, in collecting these debts. Uh, and it worked. And so that, that's, I think, what set us apart from uh, our competitors and has kind of fueled our success. How, how did you uh, raise the money to buy the uh, notes? I raised money through investors that I knew uh, on a pretty small scale to begin with. Uh, but as we had success, we, we generated some pretty extraordinary returns, especially early on when the, we could buy these just super cheap because there was such a huge supply and, and so few buyers. And then, but as we grew, we started attracting potentially institutional capital. But once they dug into my past, you know, they do background checks or whatnot, that was um, proved an impediment, uh, to say the least. So what, what, what I did is I'd write explanation each time it came up. And I'd always, every time it came up, you know, it'd be like, tell us about Woodland Meadows. And I was like, my heart would sink, like, uh-oh, you know, kind of like they found out. And the problem is, it's like they caught me um, on, on this stuff. So I, I decided... I decided to write a book, Burn Zones, which which you you've read. And I told everything, everything that went right, everything that went wrong, and I went into the details. And I, I took my cue from Barack Obama, who was, uh, you know, in his book uh, prior to the election, he shared that he he experimented with cocaine in college. And now, if if during the election somebody found that out and he hadn't told anybody, then he would be. It's like gotcha. Uh, you know, that would be something that would drain him in a in, in the public eye but instead he was proactive and said hey this is something that happened it, it, it's it's done and uh and he got ahead of it and that was i think brilliant uh and 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 great for him he was um and so that that was i i i thought hey i'm gonna put everything i and i make the bad stuff i'm not gonna sugarcoat it i'm gonna put it in there this is this is everything that i went through and and share how i felt at that point and it worked uh now instead of investors would read the book Instead of just saying, okay, it's okay, we can invest with them, people will come and say, God, I face some challenges on my own. You know, I, I, I admire that you got through it. I want to support you. So they'd be investing more than they would otherwise. It wasn't just getting over the problem. So that was now when I go to conferences, you know, lots of times there's like four or five people on the stage all talking about their successes. And then I'll start talking about my failures. And the failures, it's like a car wreck on the side of the freeway. People love 
to hear about other people's failures. I mean, it's not a, it's just interesting because it's like, uh, it's not what you always expect to hear. And that's been really helpful. So I think part of my success today is the fact that I've shared, uh, the stories, not only did I learn from them, but I've also shared everything that happened, including the worst stuff and including the big mistakes that I made and how I've learned from those. So that, that's, uh, that's been helpful. Did, did the institutional uh, investors step, step up and start? In, they, in, in, wow. Okay. They did that. And the book really helped them. I mean, they say he sent, sent some extra copies of the book for, for some other people at firm. It wasn't just like, uh, like the book is not, as you read, is not a promotional, it's not a promotional, it's not a promotion. It tells some the the worst parts of my life were shared in there without any sugarcoating, and that was um, I think people res- it resonated with people. This is just an aside, just on to me. And if you're if you're not comfortable saying that's fine, but how many how many copies of the book have you sold? Around ten thousand. Okay, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, and it's not. I mean, which isn't huge, but yeah, but ten thousand still that's a lot. How how many? I mean, mo- the average book I think sells two hundred copies that, that get oh. published. Yeah. It's got pretty good reviews. Um, it's on Amazon. I think there's like I read the reviews because I'm always curious. People opine on 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 my life and me, and, and generally good, but not always good. I mean, obviously, my family hasn't had great interactions with the police, and so have many many of my friends, and so I share that in there. And uh, some people. Find, take offense at that, that I'm cop bashing. And really, I'm, I'm not. I know there's a lot of good cops, but um, some of my experiences myself and particularly my father have had with the police have not been good. And, uh, and I, can, I think that's kind of framed my reference as, as an example. Most of the reviews are good, but certainly a police officer, some in their family, they, some of them have taken offense and not, um, not like the book, but it's what I grew up with. So I read the reviews. There's like 300 some reviews. And uh, it's interesting. And there's always like a new review here and there of somebody reading it and how it impacts them. Uh, a lot, again, it, it's, it's fun to share that story. I'm looking forward to the day that my kids read it and, uh, and can understand and, and see what I went through and, and, and hopefully they can also learn from it. The, the fund that you started uh, to help, you know, homeowners in, in trouble and in, in, in buying notes, do you see yourself continuing that fund or what, what's next for uh, George? Yeah, no, we've morphed into additional funds. So now we, we have two funds that are open. One is uh, AHP Title. We actually own a title insurance company, which also buys defaulted mortgages. So similar strategy. Uh, we have a um, another fund open called Pre-REO, uh, which is a platform where real estate investors can buy defaulted mortgages from institutions. And so we have, uh, those are the two funds that are open right now. And we'll continue to raise funds. Uh, you know, the goal here right now, I have you know, always big lofty goals. Uh, so the goal here right now is by 2025, the end of 2025, to grow the through the next downturn, I think would be a big opportunity for us to increase our revenue through all the companies and then roll them all up and get it listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So that's the current goal. There's always a big goal. So that's the, the big goal. And that point, I'll be 60. My kids will just be starting kindergarten. And, uh, you know, I'd love to. So right now I'm trying to work towards that and then really, you know, kind of, I won't say close the chapter, but, but the, um, I'd like to get to that point. It'd be a, a, a hopefully a comfortable point and hopefully some, something on my mind will trigger that, okay, it's okay to relax right now. Cause I, I always, uh, always feel driven to keep going. And with the kids that settled that down a bit and maybe accomplishing that big a goal, hopefully I don't start setting new additional big goals in business. I think, I think this is, uh, that would be, you know, the, the uh, closing chapter of this period of, of big success before Woodland Meadows, colossal failure, uh, a rebuild, and then, you know, a big, a big exit. Um, so that's, that's, uh, 
that's what I'm working towards right now. It seems, seems uh, just as many of my dreams, it probably seems like a, a big goal. Uh, but as I take incremental steps towards it, uh, day by day and week by week and year by year, I'm hoping it comes closer. And then all of a sudden, wait, it, it, you get to a point where you say, hey, it's going to happen. I'm not at that point yet, but there becomes a point it's, uh, where you're saying, hey, you've taken 80%, 75% of the steps, 80% of the steps, and now you're getting closer. This is actually going to happen. Nowhere near there yet, but that's what I'm working towards. I'm going to be the last guy to count you out, man. <laughs> I I will not count you out. You know, but as an aside, there's this guru that on occasion I watch on YouTube, and he says um, that uh, as human beings... We strive and we massage and we manipulate to get what we want out of life. And then once we get it, we suffer. And so, <laughs> yeah, so that, that's been my case because I've gotten everything I want and I still suffer like crazy, man, because, because it's, you know, the, it's between my two ears. And so, uh, if you're anything like all these other human beings, George, with, I have a feeling you are, you're going to, you're going to, dude, you're going to need to do something else. It might not be like a, you know, like a, a for profit business, but you'll, you, you've got too much energy and too much creativity and that drive is never going to die until you, uh, until you are on the other side of the grave. But um, what would you say in everything you've done, which is so damn impressive. And when you can, it's kind of funny, by the way, when you say Woodland Meadows, that you characterize it as a failure, having read the book and having just talked to you now, I actually don't, I don't see it as a failure, you know, if for no other reason, because it was circumstances completely beyond your control and, uh, and you handled it well. And, you know, and, and, and frankly, you bounced back. So to me, I look at it like it was a success, you know, easy for me to say, right. I didn't have to go through all the, the, the mental brain damage, but I look, I look at it like oh, it was a success. Yeah. That's, um, uh, I've learned, I learned a lot from it in that regard. And, and, and you're not the only one with that perspective. The biggest investor in Willow Meadows was all state insurance. Uh, and the portfolio manager there was uh, had a front row seat to all the challenges uh, and me getting through them. And when I started American Home and Preservation, he stayed in contact. And then eventually he retired and said, hey, I'll become your partner. You got to move to Chicago. And that's how I ended up in Chicago. So it was an experience. I mean, it was, it was stomach churning, as you read, but it is something that uh, the further it gets, there were a lot of good times there, but then just the end was was challenging. Uh, and, uh, so we'll see how it ends up. Uh, if I can do this, get us listed on the York Stock Exchange, I would, I would look back at Willow Meadows as just one of the steps that got me there. And there'll be steps that, that took me forward and steps that took me backward. And, and, uh, and that would be one that, um, you know, probably took me backward, but in many ways probably set me, set, uh, put me on a different path that, um, put me forward. Here's what I, I, I will give you the following personal guarantee. What's that? Uh, as the years go by, your perspective and your perception of the experience will change. And I'm not going to say exactly what it's going to be, but it just will. And you'll look back further and further and the gets in the rearview mirror, the more your perception of that experience will change. I have one last question, and it's this. Out of everything you've done, what would you say are, is the most important lesson or lessons, plural, that you've learned? Uh, don't look back. And this was actually talked to him, talked to me by John Howard, who was an Olympian in cycling, who was coaching me. And he said, don't look back. You can't worry about who's behind you, what's behind you, just look forward. And I, I was, I took, I took that literally. So I'd be in a race. If I was 10 seconds ahead or 10 minutes, it really didn't matter. You got to keep going as fast as you can and not take comfort in being too far ahead and, and not be overly worried if you're too, too shortly ahead. And I take that 
Also in business, as when you suffer a loss, you make a mistake, you got to get over it fast. I think the best example is like an NBA basketball player in that game. They miss a shot. They can't be thinking of, they can't keep thinking about missing that shot or they're going to, their mind, they have to be in the present. And the same thing in business, you have to be in the present and, and not think, God, I made that big mistake yesterday and, that, and that I'm still brewing it today. Uh, you got to move forward, stay focused, stay in the present. And then, uh, and, and, and another big one is there's not, uh, people often look back and say, God, my one big opportunity was this and I missed it. And now I messed up my life. There's opportunities every day, every week, every year of different, different magnitude. And so, if you miss one, that's fine. There's going to be more. Never, There's never a once-in-a-lifetime deal. There's always more opportunities coming. If you're open and receptive to them, you have to be creative, innovative, and, and perceive the and, and see opportunities where others don't. Looking at what I did with that building in, in the the 290 units in LA after, after the deal was done, it was saying, well, what, get me deals like that. I'll do that. Uh, you know, make a million bucks. And, but at the time, no one wanted to buy that property. Somebody has to see the, you have to see the value where others don't. And, and, and so those, those are, that's just what comes to mind, but there are, um, you know, I try to stay with that. And then also then the business, the landscape changes all the time. So what worked two years ago may not work today. So you can't, you can't get stuck. You have to be open to perceiving opportunities where, um, I have to always remind this, you know, just because it worked two years ago, doesn't mean it's gonna work today. You need to find ways and, and, and the landscape changes. How are you going to change with that? You know, I look at the guy from Netflix, great, great, great business. He had a great business, you know, when you rented CDs and they come in the mail and he went to streaming. And at the time, the, his investor base, many of them, uh, said big mistake, you know, this is ridiculous, da, 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 da. Few years later, I mean, today it looks like a, just an absolutely brilliant move. But at the time, he had a successful business, but he pivoted it into something that, in the short term, wasn't more successful. In the long term, just wildly more successful. So, so even when you get uh, comfortable and you're successful, still look for other ways to. You, there's going to be somebody. If he didn't do it, some would be coming for him. And in fact go back to Blockbuster, you know, when Blockbuster was, ha, owned it, uh, they owned everything. And then Netflix started shipping away. Uh, and at first Blockbuster resisted, said, no, we're going to go brick and mortar. And so you can learn that and, and never think, uh, you, I'll tell you one more, just because they come to mind, always focus on what you have, not what you don't have. I don't have a college education. I don't have a, um, I have millions of dollars in judgments against me. Uh, you know, all these bad things I could say, if I focus on that, you know, that's like, oh my, I'm not going to do anything. Focus on what I do have, you know, through all those challenges. I came away with my mind. I came away with uh, some awesome experience. Um, and I came away with, um, you know, probably a better understanding of how, how life works. And, and uh, so focus on what you do have. You don't have money, but you have expertise. Then find somebody who has money, vice versa. Uh, so, so, but don't, it's very easy to focus on the, the things that you don't have. Focus on what you have. Got it. Okay, man. Well, on that, it's a wrap. We're, it's, it's, it's September 2nd, 2022, heading into uh, Labor Day weekend. And uh, after I'm done, after, at this point, my labor is done for the weekend. And so this has been absolutely fantastic. And I hope to do this again with you. And I, I, I so much appreciate your time. No problem. I've really enjoyed it, Roger. George, be well. You too. I'll talk to you later. Thanks a lot. You got it. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. <laughs> 